Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, March 14th, 2023, the 783rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I want to begin today with a... Tweet from Jordan Schachtel on Twitter. You might remember Jordan came on to one of my Badlands shows a couple of months ago. We talked about the World Economic Forum and global governance. I really like Jordan. I think he's got a great Twitter account. And last night he tweeted this. Saw an article about masks in the Wall Street Journal today. 
After publishing Pfizer columns for three years, they decided today is a good day to deem masks bad. It's bizarre that people are still debating this. It has always been violently stupid to wear a mask. Now it just confirms mental illness. When I see people still advocating mask wearing and mRNA shots, I observe it like I would a junkie from afar in a sketchy urban area. Keep your distance and move on. This far along the way, there is no point in litigating these issues. Either you get it or you never will. Even debating this stuff under the premise of science is nonsensical. Truly evil people stole years of our lives and productivity, the mask and everything else involved to quote unquote, stop the spread of the China cold acted as symbols of submission to tyrants. And I absolutely agree with him. I could not like a series of tweets more than I like that series of tweets from Jordan Schachtel. He is exactly right. This is what I was talking about a month or so ago in an episode called Gay Data that I recorded after Yoel Roth's testimony in front of Congress about what Twitter did to curtail the free speech of American citizens on behalf of the regime government. And you might recall that Yoel Roth wrote a thesis called Gay Data, where he studied the data of Grinder, the gay dating app, and made suggestions about how they should view and treat underage users of Grinder who were nonetheless looking for gay hookups and gay adults on Grinder who wanted to hook up with underage guys. But Yoel Roth is his own creepy, probably criminal thing. And so let's leave that aside. The point of that episode was that arguing from data, for instance, and it's true of a lot of other arguments as well, is pointless because it's not an argument. It's just information among other information that might help you make an informed decision, but nonetheless does nothing to tell you what the right decision is. And so I was making the point that when we are faced with a dangerous or threatening situation, what we need to do is figure out what the critical decision points are and then make value judgments about what might best help us avoid the threat or the risk. But rather than focusing on key decision points and focusing on what our broader goals are to save lives and maintain a functioning society, we began to see the implementation of a pre-planned agenda that was not supported by data, not supported by science, not supported by anything. We were just told we had to go along with it. And then down the line, after everyone had realized that the pandemic was not as dangerous as they said, not by a long, long, long shot, the best statistics we have on the infection fatality rate show it to be on par with the flu. So there was never any reason to shut down society in the first place, but we did it. And what we've seen since then are these data-driven arguments about how those decisions weren't wrong, even though they didn't stop the spread. They didn't save lives. And they did destroy society, not just in America, but around the world. Any conversation of the downside risks of locking down or forcing children to wear masks so that they couldn't develop socially, so that they couldn't develop in their speech. We had them do something that actually made them sick. We didn't consider any of those downside risks. Those were all ignored and they're still being ignored this long after the event for three years. 
these subjects have been ignored except to support them with studies and data. And people still find themselves arguing about studies and data online. And Jordan's making the correct point. None of that matters at all. People find themselves in these extended conversations about the nuances of things that are already proven wrong. And the problem is that we are trapped in this paradigm of believing that every decision in our lives requires this college-educated conversation about exactly what's going on. And you have to make every single point imaginable. If I bring up a point, well, your counterpoint is going to be, well, you know what? I've found an exception to your point, or I've found something that makes your point sound a bit hypocritical. And the truth is, hey, Kami, that doesn't matter at all. What matters is whether or not I'm right, not whether or not you can find something you can argue is wrong about what I said. If I say masks don't work and your response is, well, that's not true. A KN95 mask worn properly, according to the directions, a new one, of course, can actually prevent some spread of an aerosolized virus for a certain amount of time. Therefore, the masks do have some function. Therefore, what we should encourage is everybody wearing these perfect masks perfectly all the time. Ipso facto, problem solved. But the thing is, none of that actually proves that masking healthy people across a society can prevent the spread of an aerosolized viral particle. That's not what their argument does. All their argument does is suggest theoretically that masks could be somewhat effective under perfect conditions with everybody doing it. But the studies don't even support that, which is why their argument is only theoretical, doesn't work in real life. It's actually not an argument at all. So the argument's not worth engaging. Masks don't work. Likewise for the vaccines. Not vaccines, first of all, but they were never necessary. The only thing that those vaccines did was allow us to open up society. And that was only due to the placebo effect, to the narrative effect. People felt safer, and so society was allowed to continue. And the truth is that people only felt safer because they were imagining that what they were told was a vaccine was what they'd always believed a vaccine to be, something that will prevent you from getting the illness. And we knew almost immediately that these vaccines didn't do that. They couldn't help us reach herd immunity. And that's all you need to know to be able to say, hey, the vaccines don't work. And it turns out they're not safe and they're not effective. And those were in the initial documents from the pharma companies, the FDA, the CDC. They all had access to that. They knew that. And of course, we knew that from the beginning, too, because we were checking. Now we see the vaccinated getting sick more often, getting covid more often, dying at higher rates than the normal population from all causes. And indeed, there are plenty of deaths directly caused by the vaccine. So what we're told instead is that the number of problems is statistically insignificant in comparison to the overall number of doses they say 
they've injected into people's arms. So what we know is that the vaccines, which aren't vaccines, were not necessary, are not safe and are not effective. Even if the risk was virtually zero, statistically insignificant, it's still no reason to inject yourself with a toxic experimental substance that can't protect you from a disease that can't kill you. And at that point, it doesn't matter what studies they have, what studies they can show you about how in the lab it produced antibodies. And theoretically, these antibodies should protect you from COVID. Turns out they don't, but they should. And therefore, it's important that everyone take these vaccines based on our understanding of antibodies and their ability to protect you from the worst outcomes of disease. And they go on and on and on. Hey, look at these numbers. Look at my data. Hey, did you see this study that's funded by Bill Gates and Gavi and the CDC? Did you hear about the new technology in the bivalent booster? Did you hear that Bill de Blasio is going to give you a burger and fries if you inject yourself? Did you hear you can get a $50 gift certificate to Best Buy if you inject yourself? Hey, Kami, the vaccines don't work. And you know they don't work, so just go ahead and stop saying it. And the point Jordan's making and the point I want to reinforce is that these aren't serious conversations. They might sound like serious conversations because they're based on studies and data and things that college educated people really, really care about. Hey, I'm college educated. I graduated cum laude from a great school. I double majored in business management and philosophy. I did just great in college and still... I can understand that the process through which I gained that education actually just indoctrinated me into really terrible paradigms of thought where I would virtually always reach wrong conclusions because I was incentivized to reach wrong conclusions and understood that the things about which I was drawing conclusions are just too complicated for the average person to understand. And therefore, my convoluted and complicated explanations for why the alternate reality version is true should be preferred in every instance over the simple case that everything I'm talking about is complete and utter bullshit and entirely irrelevant to the question. And we can go through a million of these examples because this is how conversations in our culture work right now, particularly online and particularly on Twitter. It's like we've coached the entire society to argue the way a college freshman argues. I've talked about this many times in terms of how people will send links or tell you that they need to check your sources. Oh, I need another source, another source, another source. None of these count as sources. And people try to enforce the idea that everything that's said must come equipped with that sort of argument or else you can't say it. Oh, you're a fool. You're a clown. You need to be talking about all these things on an intellectual level. And naturally, I get that all the time because I don't operate that way on Twitter, as you may have noticed if you follow me on Twitter. Because in practice, what Jordan Schachtel is talking about is essentially what I do. I will not engage with any argument along these lines unless I can tell that the person I'm talking to actually wants to know things. And then what we're having is not an argument. We're not having a debate. We're just engaged in a dialogue and we're both trying to learn. Here's some information I have. Let's see some information you have. 
as long as we are talking about the actual decision points, the things in the debate that actually matter, and we're not arguing about the nuances of this complete and total fiction that is often being discussed, well, then we might be able to have a productive conversation. And that can't happen with someone who thinks that masks work or that the vaccines should still be taken. So when you get hit with a conversation like this, where someone wants to be very college educated with you, you should know immediately that they have made a mistake much further down in their thinking. And so you don't actually need to have the conversation with them on that top line where they want to have the conversation. They can go all day long about how this study shows that more people's lives could have been saved if it weren't for vaccine hesitancy. Well, that doesn't matter at all because the vaccines can't save lives. Why can't they save lives? Because they can't prevent the spread of the illness and they can't actually prevent hospitalization or death. And no, the data don't show that they do. And you can go beneath that too and ask them, well, why were the vaccines necessary? And they'll say, oh, because COVID was a very deadly pandemic that was costing millions and millions of people their lives. Well, let's go below that. How do you know that COVID killed millions of people because that's the number everyone agreed to. Well, what's in that number? We know that that number includes people who died with COVID, not from COVID, and that that's something like 94, 95% of that number. So what are we really talking about here? Are we talking about a million deaths or are we talking about 50,000 deaths? And if we're talking about 50,000 deaths, well, why can't we fix the fentanyl problem that kills 100,000 people? And we know what the simple solution to that problem is. So what I'm saying, and I think what Jordan Schachtel was getting at, is that we need to actually go all the way to the bottom on these issues and not have the conversation people are trying to have and not have it in this fake, very college educated style. These people are trying to win arguments based on the volume of information that they think everybody knows. They think that everybody agrees with what they're saying. They imagine that they have the majority on their side. And so they can get away with saying all these things and that everybody knows is going to be their backup. Instead, the move is to get down to the bottom of where their argument is. What actually substantiates the thing that they're saying now? What are they trying to divert from and then go after that? If we were all doing that on Twitter all the time, these arguments would end much more quickly and these people would think twice before attempting these moves again. And I say this as someone who gets confronted with it literally all day long. And you can all see how I engage these sorts of things. We need to stop pretending that certain arguments are actually serious arguments and serious debates just because the person presenting them imagines themselves to be having a serious argument or a serious debate, because most of this stuff is not the realm of serious debate. And there's an incredible example of exactly what I mean. And this has been discussed the last few days on Twitter. It's worth highlighting briefly. An account called Jero Doc put this up today. It's at DOC underscore G-E-R-O. Remember how people used to make fun of Trump for apparently getting his policy ideas from watching Fox News? We now have evidence the CDC took words of a New York Times journalist who self-aggrandizingly whipped up 
an online Twitter mob, and because of it, reversed policy, shit cans, decades of pandemic planning, and caused mandated masking of children for months or years. So apparently CDC makes policy based on newspaper columnists and social media mobs. And he points to this article from August 23rd, 2020 in the New York Times by Ben Smith. And you might remember Ben Smith from his time at BuzzFeed, where he facilitated the publishing of the completely debunked Steele dossier that Hillary Clinton and the DNC funded, paid for the research, the opposition research that was all faked that went into the Steele dossier. That's Ben Smith. Then he got promoted to the New York Times. So in this article from 2020, he wrote, Dr. Tufeki, an associate professor at the University of North Carolina's School of Information and Library Science, with no obvious qualifications in epidemiology, came out against the CDC recommendation in a March 1st tweet storm before expanding on her criticism in a March 17th op-ed article for the New York Times. The CDC changed its tune in April, advising all Americans above the age of two to wear masks to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Michael Basso, a senior health scientist at the agency who had been pushing internally to recommend masks, told me Dr. Tufeki's public criticism of the agency was the tipping point. In the article from Ben Smith, the subheadline says Dr. Tufeki, a computer programmer who became a sociologist, sounded an alarm on the need for protective masks. It wasn't the first time she was right about something big. So the CDC, the scientific authority, the science made the decision to mask children based on a tweet storm from an academic sociologist. While everyone who reads the New York Times told all of us that we couldn't weigh in on any of these subjects because we weren't doctors or scientists. And remember, those are arguments from authority. And even worse, they're arguments that only show the point of view of certain instances of authority while disregarding all other instances. And you might remember this from early 2021. Powerful teachers union influenced CDC on school reopenings. Emails show. That's the New York Post from 2021. I'm sure I covered this on the podcast back then. But this is when the American Federation of Teachers lobbied the CDC to halt the reopening of schools. They even inserted their language into the CDC guidance. And so what's the takeaway here? The takeaway is that we cannot get wrapped up in this idea that we are always part of this very college educated debate with the people who disagree with us just because they are presenting themselves that way. Usually when someone is trying to present themselves that way in terms of one of these discussions, that person should be laughed at and mocked because they're not being serious. There is actually nothing that supports their case and the case they're making is irrelevant. It only exists in a fictional world that requires already accepting all of the premises of their arguments. We can imagine that we are fully outside of the false reality in terms of our thinking and understanding. And the truth is that no one 
is completely outside the false reality at this point. It's impossible to be that way. Maybe it's like 1% of the people who have been awake their whole lives and have somehow figured out a way to live totally off the grid and totally unencumbered by the forces of culture and society that the false reality has produced. If those people exist, congratulations to them. I'm sure that they have very happy lives somewhere off in the woods. But no matter how far outside of that we think we are, we are still accustomed to that paradigm where we have to engage with the false reality thinking of the person we're talking to because they present themselves as serious. They have all of these facts and all of this knowledge. And if you just listen to them and accept everything they're saying, well, then you'll come to the same conclusions. Except the problem is, even if everything they were saying was true, it still doesn't work in reality. There's actually nothing that can prove that masks do work because we've already seen that masks don't work unless the next pandemic is dust from drywall. That mask ain't helping. So let's update this fun story. We talked last week about how Mitch McConnell had been injured at a dinner for the political action committee, the Senate leadership fund, and he has basically disappeared since then. We are told he was dealing with a concussion. Well, we have an update today from his spokesperson. Leader McConnell's concussion recovery is proceeding well, and the leader was discharged from the hospital today. At the advice of his physician, the next step will be a period of physical therapy at an inpatient rehabilitation facility before he returns home. Over the course of treatment this weekend, the leader's medical team discovered that he also suffered a minor rib fracture on Wednesday, for which he is also being treated. The leader and Secretary Chow are deeply thankful for the skilled medical care, prayers and kindness they have received. And of course, that Secretary Chow is Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, or as Donald Trump calls her, Coco Chow. Now. I'm not saying I have any idea of what happened to Mitch McConnell or what's happening to Mitch McConnell, but it does seem a little odd that Mitch McConnell sustained a concussion and a fractured rib from falling over at a dinner at a hotel. Now he's 81, so sometimes these things can happen, but Mitch seems like a pretty spry 81 for the most part. Every now and then he turns up with a dark purple hand in the Senate. But besides those sorts of injuries, Mitch doesn't seem to be suffering from the mental decline of a Joe Biden and doesn't seem to have a hard time getting around. And it's also strange that we weren't immediately told he simply had a concussion. But I guess we can wish him well in his rehabilitation and we'll see how long that rehab takes him. Now, before we get into some more banking stuff, I want to do a little J6 stuff. And January 6th is another one of those narratives that should be considered completely dead at this point. If someone still wants to argue that January 6th, 2021 was a very violent insurrection where Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in order to overthrow the government because they believed in the big lie. That's not a serious person, and you don't need to have a serious conversation with them if they don't understand what the video that's coming out now means 
to their narrative, then there's nothing more to talk about. There's video, as we've known for two years, of Capitol Police officers talking to the people in the building, leading them around the building. There's video, obviously, of people staying in between the velvet ropes in Statuary Hall. There's video of Antifa and informants. There's pictures of Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law with the QAnon shaman. There's Nancy Pelosi's daughter and a film crew filming a documentary that day. And Tucker brought out video last week of Brian Sicknick, who we were told was bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher. And then we were told his strokes were caused by bear spray from Trump supporters, both totally false. There was video of him walking around just fine in the Capitol after the event supposedly occurred that killed him, that led to his death. A lot of what the January 6th committee told us got blown up in real time as the committee was happening. The Cassidy Hutchinson stuff about Donald Trump trying to commandeer the beast and force the Secret Service to drive him to the Capitol where he could join all his armed supporters. That story fell apart the same day. And then Benny Thompson told us last week that the committee members never even watched the footage. All of these things are critical facts about the event that have been entirely ignored by people for two years by their own choice or by their own ignorance. We've had this information. We've been researching these subjects for a very long time. Julie Kelly in American Greatness has done fantastic work on it. Darren Beatty in Revolver.News has done fantastic work on it. They blew up the similar plot in Michigan to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer and exposed that as an FBI operation. That same FBI director of that field office, Stephen D'Antuono, came down to D.C. and was involved with the events of January 6th. For as much as you could forgive people's ignorance on all of this for the last couple of years, which is very little, you certainly can't do it now while they're denying the relevance of all of this video. We already got the whole story. I was actually told this by someone on Twitter. They said, we've already seen it. We watched it with our own eyes on the news. This video that's coming out is therefore irrelevant. That is a complete and total inversion inside the false reality. What's on the TV presented by the news is what's true because they saw it in real time or so they think. And they believe that what they saw was a full and accurate representation of what was happening and that no other information can change what they believe they saw, including more information they can see. Apparently, this is from yesterday in American Greatness by the great Julie Kelly, a spill of FBI secrets. The FBI agent squirmed on the hot seat. Confronted with messages the Justice Department attempted to conceal, Nicole Miller, one of the lead FBI investigators assigned to the Proud Boys case, was on the verge of admitting that the FBI monitored privileged communications between one defendant and his attorney in 2021. It appears so, Miller responded when asked by defense attorney Nicholas Smith on March 8th to confirm that she and another agent discussed the content of emails exchanged between Zachary Rell, one of five Proud Boys currently on trial for seditious conspiracy, and his former lawyer. Smith read aloud one of Miller's texts. I need to find the other emails, 
But this one email definitely indicates that they want to go to trial. But don't freak out, Jason and Luke. Smith turned to Miller. Now, Jason, you understand to be referring to the prosecutor in this case, Jason McCullough, correct? But jurors never heard an answer. After prosecutors loudly objected, Judge Timothy Kelly abruptly dismissed the jury. He informed jurors that he wanted to, quote, press pause as we sometimes do when an objection hits, end quote, and reconvene the morning of March 9th. But that didn't happen either. Instead, Kelly, outside the eyes and ears of the jury, held a hearing with both sides on March 9th to determine how to proceed after the defense team uncovered messages indicating FBI agents doctored internal reports, destroyed evidence, and tipped off prosecutors about defense strategy on the government's highest profile January 6th case. Prior to her testimony, Miller had compiled a spreadsheet of so-called quote unquote, Jenks material that cataloged internal messages related to her work on the case. The spreadsheet contained 25 rows of messages, but roughly 12,000 rows were hidden behind a tab and found by the defense. One message referenced editing a report on a confidential human source, commonly known as an informant. You need to go into that report you just put and edit out that I was present. One agent texted Miller. She complied. Another agent told Miller an FBI supervisor instructed the unidentified agent to destroy, quote, 338 items of evidence, to which Miller reacted, OMG INSANE, in all caps. In perhaps the most shocking revelations, Miller and another agent discussed emails between Rell, who has been imprisoned under pretrial detention orders since March 2021, and his then attorney, Jonathan Mosley, quote, found an email thread with Rell and his attorney, Mosley. The attorney raised some interesting points, hopefully all related to him pleading out, Miller replied. Another defense attorney later noted that, quote, there appear to be missing FBI messages, end quote, in the same exchange. Rather than express outrage at the fact that the FBI was spying on what is commonly considered privileged communications protected by the Constitution, Kelly instead gave prosecutors time to concoct a face-saving strategy, and that they did. It appears that the Jenks production to defense counsel may involve a spill of classified information, Assistant U.S. Attorney Joellen Ballantyne told Judge Kelly. She added that the government needed to, quote, claw back the entire spreadsheet to review all the messages for allegedly classified material. We would ask them to return to us and confirm they have deleted all copies of that spreadsheet from any electronic device or any hard drive that they have, and then we would reproduce it to them, Ballantyne said. She further claimed that one agent in communications with Miller, quote, works on a squad that does covert activity that is classified, end quote. So just to be clear about this, through the discovery process, they produced a spreadsheet that had a hidden tab that was found by the defense attorneys and then the information that was hidden in that tab was used as part of the defense. The prosecution is now claiming that what is hidden in that tab 
contains information related to covert operations that may be classified. Therefore, the defense can't have it and can't have access to it and can't use it. And she's asking that the defense must be ordered to delete all copies of that information, turn that information back over to the government, to the prosecution, so that they can go in, take out any information that might cause them problems, and then give it back and proceed as if what they've given back is the original document and all the defense has access to. And so naturally, the jury wouldn't get to see any of this at all. It would be unbelievable if the justice system was what we were all taught the justice system was. It just turns out the justice system isn't that at all. And let's just flash back briefly to the discussion about the Brady rule when it comes to the video security footage for the J6ers and the foreword from Sidney Powell's book, License to Lie. The idea of the Brady rule is that because the government is only supposed to enforce the law in service of justice under the law, they should not present as adversarial to the defendant. They should allow the defendant to have all potentially exculpatory evidence that the government has possession of, because even as they prosecute the defendant, they still have to maintain the constitutional rights of the defendant, which means that they should have the right to present their best defense. And we can see that that has been blatantly violated with the handling of these J6 defendants. This is actually a step beyond withholding exculpatory evidence, which, by the way, they also did in the impeachment trials of Donald Trump. They have the Biden laptop. They knew what the Bidens were doing over in Ukraine, but no one brought it up. Crazy how our government works, isn't it? So this is even worse than withholding exculpatory evidence. They have already handed over the exculpatory evidence, realized that it was exculpatory, realized that it hurts their case, and now they're trying to get the exculpatory evidence clawed back so they can remove the exculpatory part and make that unusable for the defense. That is such an incredible violation of every principle of justice. But back to Julie Kelly. Ballantine claims the 338 items of destroyed evidence might, quote, impact a classified equity, end quote, whatever that means. Naturally, defense attorneys immediately objected to the government's demand that incriminating materials be returned to the original source and, without any oversight or accountability, unilaterally decide which messages were classified and which were not. Everything has been a secret order where we can't share any information. Sabino Jeragui, the lawyer representing Enrique Tario, complained to Kelly, and Enrique Tario was one of the Proud Boys leaders who was also known to be a federal informant. He was actually picked up on January 5th. Everything has been done undercover, and now they come in here. They use this word classified to try and delay the case. I think we should continue. I think Mr. Smith's gotcha moment yesterday was ruined and he had every right to get that agent and destroy her on cross. And all of a sudden the trial was stopped. 
Kelly, a longtime Justice Department employee who worked for years at the U.S. Attorney's D.C. office, the same office prosecuting every January 6th case, was unpersuaded by the defense argument and the totality of the evidence before it. I think it makes sense for me to order the defense to do what the government's asked, Kelly concluded. The spreadsheet, which Ballantine later in the hearing described as a quote unquote classified document, could not be reviewed, copied or shared until further notice. A flurry of motions followed. Defense attorneys filed motions to dismiss the case based on Sixth Amendment violations. The Justice Department informed the court on March 12th that 80 rows in the original spreadsheet had been removed after prosecutors determined the messages were, quote, either classified or sensitive. And the reference to a doctored FBI report? The government claimed the agent requesting the edit simply wanted to be removed from an email chain because he had been promoted and was no longer handling the informant. The exchange concerns a routine clerical matter and does not suggest any wrongdoing on the part of the FBI generally or of Agent Miller personally, prosecutors wrote. Sure. Oh, and the 338 items of destroyed evidence? Prosecutors insisted without providing a scintilla of proof that that message referred to the routine disposal of evidence in a 20-year-old case that had been closed. Always indignant, the Justice Department condemned the, quote, potential for confusion and unfair prejudice here is obvious. Given the inflammatory use defense counsel have already made of the destroy evidence remark. But the government's explanation as to why FBI agents were spying on email correspondence between a defendant and his attorney, then apparently sharing that intelligence with prosecutors handling the case should alarm all Americans. According to the Justice Department, individuals incarcerated at federal prisons, including defendants not convicted of any crime, as is the case with the Proud Boys, including Rell, now on trial, are not entitled to protected communications with their lawyers. All emails and phone calls, the government explained, are conducted on a computer system operated by the Justice Department. Those in custody must agree to terms of use, including an acknowledgement that attorney-client discussions would be monitored. Rell waived any privilege by knowingly using the Federal Detention Center Philadelphia's monitored email system to communicate with his attorney. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) I mean, again, this should be unbelievable. But after the last three years, The only reaction is to shrug and be like, yeah, that makes sense. That is the government we're dealing with. Prosecutors demanded that cross-examination of Agent Miller, which Kelly interrupted right before the line of questioning got juicy, be limited to, quote, video, photographic and message evidence from January 6th, 2021, from midnight to shortly before 5 p.m. Translation, anything Miller discussed after January 6th should be off the table. As expected, Kelly folded to nearly every government demand. He accepted at face value the explanation that the destroyed evidence pertained to an old criminal case and was not relevant to the Proud Boys trial. He also refused to take up arguments about violations of the defendant's Sixth Amendment rights, declaring those discussions were not within the jury's purview. And Kelly strictly limited cross-examination about the edited report on the informant. If the government's version of what happened related to the report is true, Kelly sniffed, the defense objections are, quote, much ado about nothing. 
What Kelly must not realize is that the public does not view the dirty secrets accidentally spilled by an untrustworthy FBI and Justice Department as nothing. Kelly and the Justice Department can waive off due process rights, transparency, and the basic tenets of a fair trial. But as the American people come to terms with the phony narrative of January 6th, they ultimately will hold shameless judges like Kelly and rogue federal officials like Ballantine and Miller responsible for the accelerating degradation of the U.S. justice system. And so down goes another one of the arguments that people like to make when they are being very serious and very college educated and still trying to support the narrative of J6 as a very violent insurrection. They say, well, if people didn't commit crimes, why did they plead guilty to crimes? Well, here's why. Because the justice system is completely and totally corrupt, and they were told that their best bet was to just plead guilty to lower charges so they could face shorter sentences. Every bit of what's happening is absolutely rotten to the core. And speaking of rotten to the core, let's talk a little bit more about the bank stuff and start with this tweet from this morning by Representative Thomas Massey, who I mentioned yesterday. The last five days simplified. A group of wealthy speculators got upset that their money ended up locked into a 10-year obligation at less than 2% return. So they convinced government it was in everyone's best interest to help them out of their jam at the expense of everyone else. And so with that framing in mind, let's take a look at this from Open the Books on Substack. Open the Books is a government watchdog group that's been around for a while. And their founder, Adam Andrzejewski, is the one who wrote this article. The headline of the article on Substack. The Silicon Valley Bank cover-up and the roads leading to Governor Gavin Newsom. Background. Last Friday, when the Silicon Valley Bank quickly imploded and rocked the U.S. financial sector, it was taken over by federal regulators. The bank was known for backing tech startups and had come under fire for prioritizing investments into climate change and social ventures rather than those that could make a predictable return. The executive roster of the bank had a questionable track record. For example, SVB's chief administrative officer, Joseph Gentile, was the CFO of Lehman Brothers Investment Bank when it collapsed. SVB's chief risk officer position was left vacant for nine months through January 2023. The CEO, Greg Becker, was a director at the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank from 2019 until termination on Friday. Becker's also under investigation for selling $3.6 million in bank stock during a period when SVB was in the market to raise $2 billion from investors, an effort to keep the bank solvent. So he was pulling money out while also seeking money to keep the bank solvent, knowing that it was about to go down. Silicon Valley Bank's behested $100,000 gift to Newsom's nonprofit. Our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com found that California Governor Gavin Newsom, through a nonprofit organization with his wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, founded the California Partners Project, has very close ties to the bank. In 2021, SVB gave $100,000 in corporate gifts to the Newsom nonprofit. 
These gifts are so intertwined with the Newsom's that they are listed as a matter of California ethics law on a state government website, California Fair Political Practices Commission. All nonprofit donors are listed on the state website if they are behested gifts. The term behested means, quote, at the request, suggestion or solicitation of or made in cooperation, consultation, coordination or concert with the public official. In this case, it's the governor who behested the Silicon Valley Bank $100,000 gift. It's the governor who requested, suggested, solicited or cooperated, coordinated or acted in concert to procure the gift. However, the mandatory state disclosed conflict of interest listing also names his wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom. That's because Mrs. Newsom is also a public official, the first ever first partner. Siebel Newsom's public duties include running the office of first partner, which was created by the governor shortly after inauguration. Since 2019, the governor allocated nine staffers and nearly $5 million in taxpayer funds for his wife's office. However, that's only part of the story. Silicon Valley Bank and its executives played a major role in the Newsom nonprofit, the California Partners Project, since its founding. The president of Silicon Valley Capital, the investment banking arm of the bank, is John China. <laughs> These names are amazing to me. Mr. China is a 27-year SVB veteran. He's also a founding board member of the Newsom nonprofit. Even today, China is still listed as a director on the nonprofit's website. The California Partner Project's first board chair, Elizabeth Gore, was also connected to SVB. Her company, Hello Alice, which connects entrepreneurs to resources to grow their companies, received funding from SVB. John China serves on the board of Hello Alice. According to China's LinkedIn profile, SVB Capital managed $5.5 billion in capital funds. China and his group was a primary funder to the tech startups that we are hearing about in the news. California Partners Project was founded in 2020 in part to support California's gender quota law for corporate boards, a goal which SVB supported through a $100,000 gift. That funding went toward a 2021 report calling the gender quota law, quote, an inspiring success story of the ability of motivated businesses to adapt, evolve and grow, end quote. China and Gore contributed to the report, sharing their insights. SVB promoted this report in a tweet and indicated that the bank's goals and the Newsom nonprofit goals were aligned. SVB deleted its Twitter account on March 13th. However, our auditors had proactively captured the tweet. In 2022, the law was struck down by California courts on the basis of discrimination after litigation by Judicial Watch. We reached out to China and Gore for comment. Gore responded, saying that she volunteered as board chairman, served a two-year term, and a new board chair was named. She also said that she doesn't work with Siebel Newsom today. With $5.5 billion under his supervision, Mr. China had tremendous influence over the startup and venture capital industry. China also had tremendous influence over Newsom's California Partners Project. In its recent job advertisement for a new executive director, the California Partners Project gives a succinct description of what the organization does and how it relates to the office of first partner. 
California Partners Project collaborates with and strengthens the priorities of the Office of the First Partner, specifically the California for All Women and California for All Kids initiatives. CPP and the Office of the First Partner have a common goal to better serve the people of California by bringing additional awareness, data, and resources to bear so that California remains a leader when it comes to supporting women and youth. So basically, they're getting paid to propagate a narrative. That's what that is, bringing additional awareness, data, and resources to bear. In other words, California Partners Project is a nonprofit extension of the Office of the First Partner, bringing in more staffers, board members, and resources to accomplish Jennifer Siebel Newsom's goals. As the job description says, the executive director should model the office of the first partners core values through research, communications and programs and foster an internal culture that reflects them. The executive director will actively partner with board members, staff, funders and collaborators to meet the moment and further. The California Partners Project was founded to push Jennifer Siebel Newsom's first partner public policy agenda. As a founding member, the Silicon Valley Bank played a major role. Their executive, John China, was on the founding board, and the bank gave a $100,000 gift. The founding chairman of the nonprofit, Elizabeth Gore, was the entrepreneur that founded Hello Alice, an entity where SVB executive John China also sits on the board. The state ethics laws forced the disclosure of the six-figure $100,000 Silicon Valley Bank gift to the Newsom nonprofit. Federal regulators should force the return of the gift. In the absence of federal or state regulatory action, the California Partners Project should return their $100,000 gift to the bank, its startup entrepreneurs, and its depositors. Further investigations should be conducted into how SVB might have leveraged its funding and influence on behalf of the Newsom administration, and if those decisions put its financial security at risk. And apparently, according to the Wall Street Journal today, the Justice Department and the SEC are going to be investigating the collapse of SVB, including the financial transactions of the executives at that company trying to make some money before the whole thing fell over. And we will see what those investigations produce. It's entirely possible that there are still good people at the DOJ and at the SEC, but there's no reason to expect much at this point. It's kind of amazing that this entire bank issue was the scariest thing in the world all weekend, and now people seem to be just forgetting that it ever happened. Oh, that's all been fixed. Let's just move on. But the Financial Times has an interesting angle on the whole thing this morning. This is by Sheila Baer in the Financial Times. U.S. regulators are setting a dangerous precedent on Silicon Valley Bank. And the article notes that Sheila Baer is a former chair of the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, and a senior fellow at the Center for Financial Stability. These names of these places, man, every time. It's so funny. They always end up being pretty much exactly the opposite of what the organization ends up doing. Preventing systemic risk was repeatedly used as a rationale for bailing out Wall Street during the 2008 financial crisis. The 2010 Dodd-Frank Act was supposed to have fixed all of that by strengthening regulation and banning government bailouts. 
Yet banking regulators have now decided that the failure of two mid-sized banks, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, pose systemic risk, requiring the FDIC to pay off their uninsured depositors. At combined assets of $300 billion, these two banks represent a minuscule part of the United States' $23 trillion banking system. Is that system really so fragile that it can't absorb some small haircut on these banks' uninsured deposits? If it is as safe and resilient as we've been constantly assured by the government, then the regulator's move sets dangerous expectations for future bailouts. The uninsured depositors of SVB are not a needy group. They are a who's who of leading venture capitalists and their portfolio companies. Financially sophisticated, they apparently missed those prominent disclosures on the bank's websites and teller windows that FDIC insurance is capped at $250,000. Some startups that banked at SVB argued they needed their uninsured deposits to make payroll, but under FDIC's normal procedures, they should have received a sizable dividend this week to help with their cash flow needs. Signature banks, uninsured depositors, similarly would have probably achieved significant recoveries. Both banks have good assets for the FDIC to sell. They were victims of rapid deposit withdrawals, not dodgy loans or speculative investments. And I guess that's questionable. A systemic risk determination involves supermajority approvals by the FDIC board, Federal Reserve Board, and the Secretary of the Treasury in consultation with the president. It is meant to be used only in extraordinary circumstances. If regulators had evidence that uninsured bank runs would be widespread absent these bailouts, then a systemic determination might be justified. But if that is the case, it would make more sense to temporarily backstop all uninsured accounts and charge banks a fee to cover losses. When I chaired the FDIC during the financial crisis, we instituted such a program for uninsured transaction accounts used by institutions for payroll and other operating expenses. We did this to protect community banks who were losing uninsured business customers to banking giants such as J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo. The program was successful in ending runs on community banks, but despite its success, Congress decided to ban this kind of even-handed help to all banks, even while preserving regulators' ability to do one-off bailouts through systemic risk exceptions. But Congress did provide for a streamlined procedure to approve such a program, which regulators should now pursue if they truly have reason to fear widespread runs. Otherwise, regulators will have to pick and choose who they want to help. If there are more failures, who are they going to bail out next? Anyone over $100 billion? What about community banks? If they create a perception that $100 billion is the new systemic cutoff, Uninsured deposits will surely flee community banks for those in the hundred billion club. And to add insult to injury for the smaller banks, by statute, they will have to pay special assessments for costs associated with covering uninsured depositors at their larger brethren. So basically, customers who have their money at banks with under a hundred billion dollars worth of assets can expect that if something happens to that bank, they won't be covered. So that would incentivize them to move their business to one of the big banks. And then if one of those bigger banks goes down, they having 
achieved that $100 billion threshold where they get the systemic risk bailout would have that bailout supported by fees from the smaller banks. So if this description is correct, that means the government basically gives themselves the authority to decide who gets bailed out and under what conditions and can tailor their policies in ways that will create more monopolistic conditions for the big banks. It almost seems like that's what the entire thing is intended to do. The bigger problem is the Fed's too rapid unwinding of 14 years of lax monetary policy. When rates rise, the market value of financial assets fall and banks hold a lot of financial assets. The Fed needs to hit pause on further rate rises to provide time to assess their impact on the financial system. Regulators need to review all banks' capital capacity to withstand market losses on their securities portfolios if forced to sell them before maturity. Regulators also need to rethink treating government securities as basically risk-free under capital and liquidity rules. When rates rise, they are anything but. And again, that's what we've just seen. Because of the rising rates, these investments deemed to be good, safe investments immediately become bad investments. The mere fact that regulators designated two mid-sized banks as systemic implies they think the system is fragile. My instinct tells me that most regional and community banks are basically sound. The main thing we have to fear is fear itself cascading into bank runs that will force otherwise healthy banks to collapse. The government needs to be careful in its communication, lest its own overreaction causes the very deposit runs it wants to avoid. Now, Tucker Carlson had a great monologue on the SVB thing from last night, and I just want to end the show with a little clip of that because we have this tendency to think in these paradigms. We hear about this big problem and then we hear about the solution proposed by the government. And there's a big argument about whether or not that solution is going to be good and how it should be executed. And we're not arguing about the important things. We're having a nuanced conversation about the fictions involved rather than understanding that the government is going to do the thing they're arguing should be done. And in fact, the government may well have caused the problem in the first place in order to kind of reset the game board in a way they want to play it. They act like they're being put into an unfortunate situation where they only have this one choice and they would much rather not do the thing they have to do, but that's the only choice they've got. They've got to do this thing. And so we might as well just all make the best of it. And don't worry, it's not going to hurt you. And it hopefully will never happen again. Except as we often see, the thing they tell us they have to do is something that they already wanted to do before the problem arose. And this article in the Financial Times hints at that. Maybe this is an overreaction that sets a bad precedent for the future. Well, shouldn't those be primary considerations when making the decision? Instead, they're ignored because people are told in the crisis of the moment that we all just need to grin and bear it. This is what they did with lockdowns and masks and social distancing. They told us we had no choice. We were in a very deadly pandemic. And so they did all the things they wanted to do. And then they told us about how great 
all of it was. Hey, the lockdowns, they help to cure climate change. So that thing that we've always recommended and always wanted, the 15-minute cities, the shorter driving distances, the not driving at all option presented by the lockdowns, we need to do those things because of the very deadly pandemic. And it just so happens that they're all such great things that help this other part of our agenda too. And Tucker's monologue last night hints at that as well. Take a listen. What we know is the Biden administration is backstopping these deposits. Okay, but that's not the end of the story. In some ways, it's the beginning. So here's the part where you pause and ask yourself a question that too few seem to be considering right now. They're doing this. What are they going to get in return? Oh, something for sure. Remember that after 2008, the Obama administration, Eric Holder, swooped in and imposed DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion standards, on the entire financial sector. And that's one of the main reasons our big banks are now increasingly incompetent and also one of the reasons Americans are so divided by race. Ideologues used the 2008 bank bailout to kill American meritocracy. That's a big step, mostly unacknowledged, but we're living with its consequences. So you have to ask yourself, what are they going to do this time? Well, we know we're about to see bank consolidation, big banks eating little banks, and that means less competition. More consolidation means more government control. So what are they going to do with that control? Well, all things being equal, if people don't start making a lot of noise and exerting an awful lot of pressure, it'll mean digital currency, a currency that politicians control. Sign up for the CBDC app to get your food stamps. You think that's not coming? Of course it's coming. They'd like it to come in any case. Now, we're not alleging a conspiracy here, but we did notice that the four biggest banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and Chase, are doing well. And we also noticed that the White House appears to be, maybe we're just reading into this too much, trying to induce runs on regional banks. They seem to be trying to take away your confidence in those banks. So this is a bit speculative, but it seems to be a picture that is emerging over the days as we watch this thing develop. We have a bank that facilitates Chinese Communist Party investments, woke investments. They have executives who have been part of other failing banks. One of the original members of the board of directors of SVB is a man named Larry Sonsini, who is a partner at Wilson Sonsini, a major law group who represents Twitter, among other tech companies. Sonsini has been called by various publications the godfather of Silicon Valley in terms of Silicon Valley attorneys. All of the venture capitalists and tech startups are tied up with Silicon Valley Bank. They have something like 1,500 climate-related startups connected to the bank and $5 billion worth of ESG investments. So the bank is essentially operating as the financial facilitator of a lot of this woke agenda, the Green New Deal agenda when it comes to tech. And the bank with this spotty history that regulators should have been tuned into and handling is allowed to collapse and then is backstopped, aka bailed out by a brand new government mechanism that they say will not cost the taxpayers anything as if the government somehow just has its own money that's disconnected from taxpayers. And the fallout of all of this is that people lose trust in regional banks. Regional banks become 
less safe as a place for people to keep their money. Business consolidates into the monopolistic big banks. And sooner or later, that's going to be the only option you have. And once they're the only option you have, all you need is that cashless central bank digital currency operated by these banks who go along with that agenda. I mean, they owe the government something for bringing them all this new business and creating them as monopolies. And once you get that far, all you got to do is hit the on switch and you pretty much control everybody. It's amazing that their response to this immediate crisis that could threaten to destroy all of society just so happens to exactly align with the agenda that they were already pushing. Isn't it incredible? Thank goodness the adults are back in the room and Joe Biden is there to tell us that everything's going to be just fine. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!